This message comes from Capital One. Your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services backed by the strength of a top 10 commercial bank. Visit CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Member FDIC. Hey, it's David, your host for this edition of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly changing, and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. Stay up to date with news by listening to your local NPR member station and visiting npr.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm NPR's David Gura, and it's time for another edition of the News Roundup. Let's get into it. It's been the hottest week of the summer. Dangerously high temperatures are baking large parts of the South and the West. Now the heat has moved east. In Washington, the political mercury is also rising. On Capitol Hill, Republicans are floating impeachment trial balloons. And there's been congressional testimony about unidentified objects from outer space. We have nothing that can stop in midair and go the other direction, nor do we have anything that can come down from space, hang out for three hours, and go back up. Mr. Gresh, finally, do you believe that our government is in possession of UAPs? Absolutely, based on interviewing over 40 witnesses over four years. With us here on planet Earth are Todd Zwillick. He's the deputy D.C. bureau chief at Vice News, also the author of the Breaking the Vote newsletter on democracy and indictments. Megan Scully is with Bloomberg News, and Anita Kumar is the senior managing editor for standards, ethics, and content at Politico. Great to have all of you here. And let's start with these new charges Donald Trump faces that are connected to how he handled classified documents after he left office. A new federal indictment unsealed late Thursday alleges the former president was part of a scheme to delete security footage from a server at his Mar-a-Lago estate in order to stop that footage from being reviewed by investigators. A newly charged defendant, identified as a property manager at Trump's residence, told another employee that the boss wanted the server wiped clean. Todd, I take it he's not referring there to Bruce Springsteen. This is a superseding <laughs> indictment. What what more do we know about the alleged role here played by this new defendant? Yeah, a superseding indictment, three new charges, as you said. And they are just dead serious now. This is the cover-up. This is, you know, we always reach for the comparisons to the things we know, the Nixonian Watergate sort of analogy. And uh, this is getting a little on the nose, David, I have to say, going, um, Nixon succeeded in erasing 18 minutes of tape, and it doesn't appear, at least not in the indictment, that they succeeded here, although it's not entirely clear. So let me tell you a quick little story um, of how this went down. Um, Take you to June 22nd of 2022, last year. Um, Donald Trump has already um, gone through boxes with his lawyers, the FBI and the archives uh, are after those boxes. They want their classified information. Donald Trump has already lied to his lawyers and caused them, according to the indictment, to file false affidavits that a, that a full and fulsome search has been done and there are no more documents on the premises. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that's charged in the indictment. So alleged crimes have already been committed. Well, on the, on the 22nd, um, Trump's lawyer sends him an email from the DOJ saying, we have a grand jury subpoena uh, for security footage. And on that very same day, Donald Trump calls Oscar de Oliveira. He is um, the head of maintenance at Mar-a-Lago, and they have a 24-minute conversation. Longtime Trump employee. Longtime, and 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 
loyal. We're probably going to find out in the next several months just how loyal he is. Um, So that's June 22nd. Later that very day, Trump calls Walt Nada. You know him. He's the valet. He's his co-defendant and co-conspirator. And he says, I want you to get down to Mar-a-Lago right away. So Nada starts making travel arrangements. He starts telling different people different stories about why he's going down there. It's a big secret. He's kind of telling different people different stuff. And later that same day, both Nada and Oliveira start texting employee four. His name is Yuskiel Tavares. That was revealed in the New York Uh Times. He's known. In the indictment, he's called employee four. And they start texting him saying, hey, bro, you around this weekend? Might need you. Just checking up. Are you here? Cool, cool, cool. Uh, On the evening of Sunday, June 26, Nada and Oliveira, they walk together to a security office in Mar-a-Lago. That's where all the monitors are that feed to the cameras all around the property. And they stand there and start pointing out security cameras and feeds. Now, that's over the weekend. Now, comes um, uh, Monday, June 27th, in the morning. Um, uh, Oliveira uh, goes and grabs employee four, and he pulls him into what's called an audio closet, little office off of the golden white ballroom. And he says to him, um, first of all, this conversation is just between us. And then he says, uh, dude, how long does the security surveillance system hold on to data, to footage? And he goes, mm, I think 45 days. He says, okay, um, I'm going to need you to delete that. And he says, I don't think I can do that. Basically, I don't have credentials on the system. An administrator has to do that. Um, I don't think I can do that. I don't think I have the right to do that. And he says, well, the boss wants it deleted. What are we going to do? Um, De Oliveira then goes later that day and meets with Nada. By walking through the bushes, according to the indictment, uh, De Oliveira goes to the north side of the property, kind of kind of scurries through the bushes to meet up with Nada, goes away, comes back a second time to meet up with him in the bushes. Um, the FBI um, and the grand jury viewed that security footage in July and by August 8th, the search warrant and the search of Mar-a-Lago. So that is the story that is told in the indictment. Yeah. And it accrues to two counts uh, for Trump of obstruction, basically setting into motion this attempt to delete footage that the government um, had and the grand jury had subpoenaed. And also, and I'll just tell you this really quickly, sure. another count, a 32nd count of mishandling classified information. There were 31 counts. There's now a, a new document, this document you've heard of. This is the Iran war plan, the and, one and that Donald let Trump... Me, let yeah. me pick it up there. Yeah. Yeah, this, this indictment accusing Donald Trump of illegally showing that document about Iran. Uh, let's play a bit of that conversation from audio that leaked last month. Now, isn't that amazing? This totally wins my case, you know. Mm-hmm. Except it is like highly confidential yeah. secret. <laughs> this is secret information. Look, look at this. So what we what we see in this indictment for the first time, as Todd was getting to there, is is the allegation that that Trump the document that Trump is talking about is real uh, and it's classified. So Megan, let me turn to you. How is that? How is this at odds with what Donald Trump has said? What his account has been of that meeting? So he told reporters after after the this tape came out that it was just bravado, uh, that he was just holding up papers at the table and he was kind of bragging to these people in his office. What this these what this these charges do now is for the first time it it indicates that these were indeed real classified documents, top secret documents, actually, the kind of documents that can't even be shared with foreign allies, which goes against everything Trump has said publicly about what was what he was actually waving around there in his office at Mar-a-Lago. Anita, uh, these new charges are not what most expected this week, uh, but Donald Trump's legal team has been updated on other charges that are expected from special counsel Jack Smith related to his efforts to overturn the the last election and one meeting uh, in particular. 
want to ask you a bit about that. What do we know about that meeting that, that took place? Yeah, that's right. We are expecting other charges any day now, but we don't know when that'll be. You're right. Um, we've, we've been hearing about them. Um, what There has been reporting um, that the special counsel's office has inquired about a White House briefing from February 14th, 2020. And in that briefing, federal officials assured uh, President Trump, then President Trump, about the security of the U.S. election. So they basically said that they felt good about the election and that uh, the security was good. And these are people from the FBI, the Office of the Director of the National Intelligence and, and Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. So all these experts coming to the White House to tell then President Trump that, uh, you know, that it's going to be difficult for hacking or fraud or um, anything to happen during that election. And so, you know, the reporting out there is that President Trump was sort of listened to this message and even thought about holding a news conference to talk about it, but then he never, then he never did that. Um, and so, you know, this is important because this is, uh, as they look at January 6th, you know, as we've seen over the last couple of years, mm -hmm. President Trump has continued to talk about the fraud. And this is sort of laying that foundation that actually, no, these experts in the United States government came to him and told him it was very unlikely for this to happen. And that they felt very comfortable uh, with the with the process and procedures that they had in place. Todd, let me pick up on that. I, you know, I'm curious. So you have Special Counsel Jack Smith looking into this meeting, uh, the meeting that Anita just described. I guess you could look at the other side of the coin here and how Donald Trump's defense team might use his participation in, in that meeting. And perhaps it could work in his favor. I wonder what you think about that, if he could argue that it kind of underlines the president's kind of early anxieties about election integrity, that he had these deep-seated concerns about election fraud, say. I, I suppose, um, look, they're going to have to try on a lot of stuff, um, and maybe that's one that they can do. But it, it is an important question because this – if the experience with um, the security agents, Chris Krebs from DHS uh, Cybersecurity and others who were in on this meeting, some of them later fired um, – uh, becomes an actual issue. We don't know if it'll become an, an issue when indictments are are finally unsealed. It might go to Donald Trump's state of mind, right? His mens rea. Um, if he is charged with a conspiracy to obstruct a government proceeding or a con conspiracy to deprive voters of their civil rights, what was his state of mind? Did he know or should he have known that the election wasn't stolen and rigged and fake, even though he repeated it over and mm -hmm. over? We have seen in the January 6th committee and in news report after news report how many times. I mean, the number of people who testified under oath in the January 6th committee that they told that the that the surveyors and the researchers and the investigators told Donald Trump over and over, by the way, all Republicans, this was not a Democratic conspiracy. All of these Republican aides uh, and lawyers and general counsels told Trump over and over they had no evidence of fraud. That will be a key question. Sure. What was his state of mind? Did you know or should have known? that the election wasn't stolen when you undertook uh, the effort to mount a coup and, and um, stop Joe Biden from taking the presidency. Todd mentioning Chris Krebs, who ran CISA before Trump fired him in November of 2020, his firing coming shortly after his agency reported that the last election was the most secure in history. Uh, Krebs, as Todd noted, a registered Republican talking to Congress about that report at a hearing uh, held in December of 2020. It was based on an intimate understanding of how our elections work here in the U.S., it was based on the increase in paper ballots and audits across the nation. And probably most importantly, it was based on the professionals, the heroes that conduct elections in this country. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. Of that, I have no doubt. Much more to talk about, including 
what the former president's former attorney, Rudy Giuliani, told law enforcement this week. We'll get into the growing concerns about the Senate minority leader's health, and we'll recap a congressional hearing this week that was definitely cosmic. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org elections. Let's get back to the news roundup. This week, Rudy Giuliani, the former New York City mayor and a former personal attorney to Donald Trump, is now not contesting claims he made false statements about two Georgia election workers after the 2020 election. Giuliani says the statements he made about them are protected by the First Amendment. That assertion came in a filing Tuesday in a lawsuit by Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. Giuliani had accused both of them of voter fraud after the election. Megan, turning to you, Freeman Moss are suing Giuliani for defamation. Help us parse the language in this filing. Help us understand how it fits into this web of investigations into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Sure. Well, the filing itself is is pretty vaguely worded. Um, and while he's he's not contesting these claims, he's also not abandoning his effort to fight the lawsuit altogether. And as we can all remember, Rudy Giuliani was was Donald Trump's right hand man in the run up to and the um, aftermath of the 2020 election. And, you know, this all comes as, you know, special counsel Jack Smith is is preparing his indict to indict Trump and others, including potentially Giuliani, on efforts to subvert that election. Um you know, Giuliani himself has sat with Smith's investigators. Um, so this is really all tied together. Um, let's also remember that these two election workers, um, this mother and daughter mm-hmm. team, testified before the January 6th commission uh, several uh, a year ago um, and, and gave pretty um, uh, very emotional testimony about their uh, what they experienced in the aftermath of Giuliani's statements. Yeah, let's hear a bit of that. Uh, here's some testimony from Ruby Freeman and Shamos before the January 6th committee in June of last year. I've lost my name and I've lost my reputation. I've lost my sense of security. All because a group of people starting with number 45 and his ally, Rudy Giuliani, decided to scapegoat me and my daughter, Shay. I don't want to go anywhere. I second guess Everything that I do, all because of lies. 
Todd, this is your beat, and I wonder what your reporting has revealed about this case and other threats to election workers, particularly as we look ahead to 2024. Well, Dave, I mean, we've heard over and over how much they've been on the rise. It's amazing when you look at it every week. You know, Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, unfortunately, have become sort of poster examples of election worker intimidation because it was one of the most high-profile cases. Not only did Rudy Giuliani accuse them of passing around things like drugs, uh, even though it was they were doing their normal jobs, um, accused them of all kinds of things that got picked up in the right wing media sphere and then posted by Donald Trump. So mm-hmm. their, their lives were really ruined for a time. Um, couldn't go home. They were under protection. And when you look at this every week, it's incredible as you look around the country to find all of the small places and the small precincts around the country. Not all of them contested precincts or counties, by the way, but sometimes places that are very red where election workers who've been on the job for 10, 15 and 20 years are leaving because they're done, mm-hmm. because they just can't handle the emails, the harassment the conspiratorial accusations that come at them constantly, and they say, I don't need it anymore. I can't do it anymore. And from the very beginning of this, the question has always been, when, regardless of politics, when good people of good faith leave the jobs like this that really make the engine room of democracy run, who replaces them? Mm-hmm. Who replaces the people of good faith, even in non-contested precincts? I mean, in places, Vice News went out to Shasta County in Northern California. It's a very red county in a very blue state. That county's not going to flip any presidential mm-hmm. election, I can tell you. But um, it, that uh, re- Republicans and uh, MAGA folks in that town insisted that the town council spend $1 million. A million dollars. A million dollars to get rid of their Dominion voting machines, all from the propaganda that jumped from the Fox News Dominion voting machine lawsuit and the and the propaganda that the right has spread about Dominion voting machines. They're spending their own local money that they could be spending on sewers or water projects or roads or a community center. Um, they're really cutting off their own noses for a lie. And you see it all over the country. Well, let's turn to the latest uh, in Congress. The House and Senate now on summer break, but there was a fair amount of political drama before lawmakers left for home. On Wednesday, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell approached the podium for his weekly press conference and began speaking about the annual defense policy bill. Then this happened. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, We're on a path to finishing the NDA uh, this week. It's been good bipartisan cooperation and a string of Silence doesn't play well on the radio, but there was a lot of it and a lot more that followed there. After about 20 seconds, his Republican colleagues who were flanking him recognized something was wrong. They grabbed the Senate minority leader by the elbow and asked him if he wanted to go back to his office, and then they led him away. Anita Kumar, how much do we know about McConnell's health scare, exactly what happened there? Well, we know what he he is saying or what his staff is saying, and they're saying that he felt lightheaded. And um, as you mentioned, it was about 19 seconds that he was silent and just kind of stood there. And his colleagues, as you indicated, asked if he was okay, and then kind of escorted him away. So we don't really know much more. We know that he came back a few minutes later. Um, he walked back to the news conference by himself. He was asked, of course, uh, by reporters about his health. He said he was fine, uh, that he was able to do his job. And then, um, you know, 
that he uh, continued to answer questions. So we don't really know. We know what he has has said, that he just felt lightheaded. You know, we do know that people are sort of questioning what's going on. He is 81 years old. He did trip and fall in Washington at the airport uh, sometime uh, earlier this month. We know that he had a concussion earlier this year. And so, you know, there are people that are saying, uh, what is you know what is his health and and what do we what do we think i mean this is this is a pretty not normal i wouldn't say that but with the with the senate many many members many senators are older and there's always sort of a question about their health obviously uh with Mitch McConnell who is the leader of the party there there are a lot of questions about whether he would pursue this uh further he says he's he gave a statement actually to Politico uh uh, saying that he, or his staff did, that he appreciates the support and plans to serve out his full term at the job that people uh, elected him, his colleagues elected him to do. So uh, there is a lot of talk in the conference about him and what's going to happen with him, uh, but he says he's full steam ahead. Megan, uh, moving from the Senate to the House side, uh, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy began talking about a possible plan to start an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. How fully formed is that? How much has his tone or take on that changed here over the last few days? Well, he came out uh, pretty strongly, it seemed, initially in favor of an impeachment inquiry, uh, but then has has stepped back sort of over the last several days in various scrums with reporters saying, well, I didn't say we were actually going to launch an impeachment inquiry, which would be the first step um, towards an impeachment. And um, and so it, it's it's pretty squishy now. And, and the House left yesterday for, for six weeks for the August recess and comes back in, in September with a, a whole host of other um, other obligations, including, you know, trying to avert a government shutdown. Um, but, you know, and, and he also has not said what the impeachment, what he would seek to launch an impeachment inquiry into the president on. Would it be on Biden family finances or would it be on something else? Um, Republicans have launched a whole host of investigations against the president. Um, They haven't yet really come to any sort of agreement as to to which path they would pursue. Um, and, and he would certainly need to do that in order to to launch this this inquiry. What this served, though, was, was an ability to really appeal um, for McCarthy to appeal to ultra conservatives in his party who he's been trying to hold in line to keep this fragile majority together. Um, and and every time he brings up a piece of legislation, it, it gets fought hard from from the the far right. Uh, whether they want to push more spending cuts or social language re- involving abortion or transgender rights or, or education, um, and this was this was able his ability to just kind of throw some th- throw bone to that part of mm-hmm. the party. It, it didn't seem to. To quite quell them, they, they continued to fight over spending as the week went on, and McCarthy even had to pull an agricultural spending bill from the floor that they had hoped to consider amid uh, backlash from 
ultra conservatives. Uh, so we'll see how this all plays out uh, when the House comes back in September. But but again, they have a lot on their plate and that they need to get done in a very short period of time. Um, so I, I, I suspect this won't be the first thing we see come, coming out of the gate when they return. Anita, I'd love to get your reaction to that. When we talk about the House Speaker, so much has to do with the push and pull of his caucus or different parts of it. Is, is this something that enjoys a, a lot of support from Republicans writ large in the House? think that the party is split. <laughs> um, you know, just his party is split on so many issues and they're they're split on what really they want this next election to be about and what they want to be talking about. So in the big picture here, there is a faction that thinks, look, we've lost some elections in the past because we keep, you know, harping on and, and pushing on things like, you know, maybe, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton's emails and Hunter Biden and things like that impeachment. And then there, you know, and and that we should be looking more towards kitchen table issues, the things that uh, voters outside Washington across the country might care about. The economy would be number one at this point. Mm-hmm. Education, other things like that, that, you know, they want to know how much milk costs, things, things that are just impacting every single day. The party is very split on that. And so McCarthy recognized that. He's this very, very slim majority, as we all know, yes. and we've seen over and over, what does he have to do on the conservative side? And he's really trying to play it both ways because he's trying to run this caucus and and he's got these different factions mm-hmm. and he's just trying to sort of appease everyone because any number of things he could face, uh, you know, uh, some risk to his speakership. So uh, I felt like this was sort of what he was trying to do is sort of appease different factions. And it, it's a very... It's, it goes outside the House. It yeah. is where the Republican Party is right now in this country that they cannot figure out exactly which path they want to go on. Sticking with Congress here in the run-up to summer recess, Congress heard from three former military officials who believe the government knows much more about UFOs than it's letting on. A House Oversight Subcommittee held a hearing on UFOs, or as they're now officially known, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, or UAPs. Todd, Some of the testimony, I'll say, was a little out there. Talk of unexplained object sightings and the government's possession of non-human biologics or biological matter. What were your main takeaways from what you heard at that hearing? Well, first of all, there wasn't a whole lot new, if you're like me, and you follow this kind of thing very, very closely. You're an obsessive. I I won't say obsessive, but you're you're into this. It's so interesting, and some of the information is downright credible. Okay, so we are out of the realm of glowing discs and little green men, those stories of the past. This stuff is real. The Pentagon knows they're real. And so do members of Congress. And they're really PO'd about not being better informed and getting news that there are secret programs on this stuff that they're not directly funding. Congress doesn't like that kind of thing. So my takeaway from this, even though there wasn't a whole lot of new information, there were really two hearings for me inside of one hearing. Uh On the one hand, uh, David Grush, who is a former um, Air Force officer, he worked in the Pentagon. Pentagon's new Office of Aerial Phenomenon Assessment, uh, basically. Um, He is the one who came with with some of the most incendiary kind of out there news that the government has um, found uh, craft both intact and and, uh, crashed, um, has taken possession and tried to reverse engineer materials that are not of human origin, that bodies or biologics, as he called them, have been recovered. Um, it even said that people have been harmed, wouldn't say if people have been murdered for trying to 
um, trying to put out this information. The thing about David Grush's testimony, he has interviewed many, many people, is that he doesn't claim to have any firsthand knowledge of any of this stuff. He has been told this stuff, he says, by multiple people. He won't discuss any details in public because of classification. He claims to be able to point members of Congress towards all kinds of people who will talk. He makes claims that he has been told of biologics and alien bodies uh, or non-human bodies, I should say, or non-human materials, but has never but does not claim to have ever seen any of these things himself. So sticking to the principle that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, I think David Grush's testimony, while fascinating, has to be on one side of this. He doesn't even claim to have ever witnessed any of this stuff in person. However, extraordinary evidence, let's go to David Fravor, Navy commander, pilot. He is the pilot, one of the pilots in the famous 2004 Tic Tac incident off of the coast of San Diego flying in the USS Nimitz uh, carrier group. You've heard, you've probably seen the video online, you've heard the story. David Fravor is sort of part of a different hearing. There Mm. is evidence. There are data. Um, Telemetry, radar, infrared, gun cameras, not just one sighting but many. And this very credible pilot repeated, as he has on 60 Minutes and elsewhere, what he and his fellow pilots saw, this, this craft above the water darting back and forth in a way that a machine built by humans cannot do, shooting up into the air at ridiculous speeds, basically disappearing from his view and appearing 60 miles away just seconds later, confirmed on radar, by the way, starting at 80,000 feet, dropping down to 20,000 feet in a matter of just a couple of seconds. Nothing that we possess or nothing that we know possess, uh, that we know that we possess, can behave or perform in this way. The Pentagon does have data which... They have revealed a little bit of it and aren't revealing the rest about what these craft might be. Don't know who built them, what they might be, what the technology might be. But that was sort of a different hearing because there are data there and they're incredibly interesting and a giant question mark. What are these craft, both off the East Coast and the West Coast? What are they doing in our airspace and who built them? Definitely a moment as something that's usually in the realm of late night talk radio moves to Capitol Hill and here to a public radio talk show uh, as well. We're going to take a quick break here. We'll be back with more of the week's biggest news after this short break. This message comes from NPR sponsor Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit TeladocHealth.com slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C Health slash What's Your Why. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to the news roundup and talk about the extreme weather that's plaguing the country. On Thursday morning, the temperature at Phoenix, uh, Phoenix's airport finally dipped below 90 degrees for the first time since July 9th. That's according to AccuWeather. 18 people have died from heat-related causes this year, according to Maricopa County's weekly heat report. Phoenix could end this July with a record-breaking average temperature of 102 degrees, according to one report from the Washington Post. Megan, I'll turn to you first here. What do we know about the heat waves that are happening in Arizona across the southwest, indeed across the country this summer? 
Well, we all seem to be under this this heat dome, which has become sort of a new part of our, our lexicon this year. Um, and, you know, it, it's part of this this increase, you know, obviously this global warming trend, uh, studies indicating that air temperatures could rise three to 12 degrees by the end of this century alone, which just wreaks havoc on uh, not just our lives, but on entire ecosystems. And, you know, what we're seeing this year is... Um, you know, intensifying storms, uh, wildfires in in Canada, uh, drastically affecting air quality up there and and in the United States as well. I remember some pretty rough days here around D.C. and 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 I know that um that our friends up north have have certainly been uh, in under code red probably more often than not this summer. And then uh, perhaps uh, most recently, just this past week, we've seen ocean temperatures off the coast of Florida over 101 degrees, which which I believe is the, the highest ever recorded, higher even than, than an earlier recording in the, the Persian Gulf. Um, so it's just this, this massive trend, and it seems to really be kind of sort of coming from all directions the, this summer. Todd, let's talk about the health risks here, and it's something the White House talked a bit about this week uh, as well, just extreme health risks coming from these extreme temperatures, this extreme weather. We've talked for so long about the chronic rise in global temperature and what it means, you know, speaking selfishly for us here at home, diseases that were once tropical or subtropical creeping their way north, things like malaria, and there are cases of malaria in the southern United States now. But the heat dome that Megan's discussing, um, you know, this severe heat that you feel. I was just out in Phoenix a couple of weeks ago for a few days. It is downright oppressive. I mean, it mm-hmm. is like being in a convection oven. Anyone listening to me in Maricopa County doesn't need to be told, but we are, we're not used to this on the East Coast. So, so um, you know, I kind of put a point on it. It's like being in a convection oven. Dehydration mm-hmm. is clearly a risk, and that's risky for lots of people, including elderly people and infants. But severe heat raises blood sugar. Imagine the uh, danger to somebody who is a diabetic or, or an uncontrolled diabetic. It can lead to dizziness, which of course can lead to falls. Falls are a major cause of broken bones and death in elderly people. And that's just a a, a couple of the a couple of the items. So the the problems cascade from there. And that's before you even get away from the direct human health effects and look at what's been happening with the uh, Antarctic sea ice. Very, very disturbing. This is sort of on the on the climate science end. Um, the amount of ice that has melted this winter, you expect the ice to recover. The amount of ice we're now seeing reports this week in the Antarctic. So forget about heat over Charlotte, North Carolina, um, is is so low that it is five standard deviations below the mean, the average amount of ice recovery you'd expect every winter. And that kind of event is so rare that you would only expect it uh, once every like one million years. And that's not an exaggeration. I'm, I think I got the number right. But um, once every, excuse me, I'm looking at my science now. You'd only expect a winter like this about once every 7.5 million years. The ice is so low in the Antarctic now. Heads up on Monday's program, we're going to discuss the ways heat can impact our mental health. We'd love to hear from you about this. How does the heat affect your mental state? Leave us a voicemail, 855-236-1212. As summers become hotter, as they have, and weather events more extreme, are you dealing with anxiety around a changing and unpredictable climate? 855-236-1212, or you can leave a message with our app, 1A Vox Pop, and we'll get to your stories 
on Monday. I want to turn now to immigration. And one of President Biden's tools to control the flow of migrants at the southern border is in limbo. On Tuesday, a federal judge blocked a Biden administration regulation that places restrictions on asylum seekers. The policy has been in place for just two months. The judge did give the government two weeks to appeal the decision. The policy remains in effect during that time. Anita, just give us a sense of what this policy is and how it restricts migrants. Yeah, the policy restricts those that are seeking asylum if they've passed through other countries on the way to the United States. So what does that mean? It means it's effectively shutting down or restricting most migrants who are coming from countries south of Mexico. Um, And so this was one of the things, as you mentioned, they had put in place. Um, This was immediately uh, saw a legal, uh, someone, you know, trying to, to fight this and it went to court. And what's interesting about this is this was very similar to a policy President Trump had in place. So the Trump administration had it in place. And it went right back to the same judge in California in the Northern District uh, that dealt with the with the Trump uh, policy as well and also blocked it. So uh, it's very similar. It has now said twice that it's uh, something that shouldn't be put in place. And the, the government, the Biden administration has said they are going to fight this and and so I would expect them to to quickly appeal. Um, as you mentioned, this has only been in place since about uh, May, so only a couple months. And we'll, you know, sort of have to see what happens. And if this, if it does change as these court cases continue, or if they will allow it to just move forward at the at the same time. Megan, speak to the the efficacy of the policy change, because I'm sure that's what the White House will argue in that appeal that, that Anita is mentioning. Uh, you know, ar- around this transition alarm bells were ringing. There was a lot of concern that we were going to see a huge surge of, of, of uh, migrants coming to the southern border. What, what in fact happened? Remind us just sort of how this played out when this transition took place. Sure. Well, you know, that that actually did not, in fact, happen, uh, which was, I think, surprising to to many of us who, who were watching it. Um, and, you know, but what the, yeah, I think importantly, what the, the White House has been saying on this is, you know, we recognize this is not a perfect policy. And they've really been trying to to put the pressure on Congress to pass some kind of immigration overhaul. But Congress has tried and failed for decades, really, to to address this issue. There, there's so much, um, it's such a charged issue on Capitol Hill. There's there's disagreements within both parties on it. Um, and um, obviously there's electoral politics at play here heading into 24. Um, and so, you know, I think we're just going to continue to kind of see that this patchwork and and with, with the administration, uh, this administration and future administrations coming forward with less than desirable policies um, and then Congress not being able to pass anything comprehensive that that can really um, deal with this issue. Todd, let's talk about Texas uh, as we stick with immigration. The Biden administration suing Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott for installing physical deterrence for people who are trying to cross the southern border. Uh, these objects in question, I guess, a thousand thousands of feet long, string of large buoys in the Rio Grande. How does this fit into Governor Abbott's other attempts to slow migrant crossings? Tell us a bit about this suit. Well, Megan was just describing the electoral incentives involved in the immigration debate. And um, there it is in the state of Texas. There is nothing but incentive for conservative, uh, in Abbott's case, right-wing Republicans, especially along the border, to be seen as a thumbing the nose um, or 
or challenging the Biden administration at every turn, even when border crossings plummeted after the end of Title 42, which they have. The messaging didn't really change on the right. It was still a border invasion. Um, and that rhetoric holds um, as as uh, as incendiary and as racist as it is. Um, Joe Biden is intentionally flooding the zone with immigrants. Alejandro Mayorkas must be impeached. Go down the list. So there's nothing but incentive for Greg Abbott to take matters into his own hands and put up barriers in the Rio Grande to keep migrants out. Um, there is a long, long-running policy, but also a long-running debate in this country about who, it's not really a debate, I should say, about who controls immigration policy. The courts, the Supreme Court, has ruled over and over again that it is the federal government that is responsible for national immigration policy. And except in very narrow circumstances, when states try to step out and block their borders or put up barriers, both figurative and physical, to migration, courts usually step in and say, mm, not your job. So that's the bottom line of the Biden administration's lawsuit here. Not your job. That's our job. We get the politics of what you're trying to show here. And the barriers are you know, nice and bright orange. They get on TV and they cut good B-roll. Um, but um, immigration is our job, not yours. Just going to read a bit here from The New York Times about those aggressive tactics that we've seen. I'll quote, there's been the installation of additional layers of concertina wire along the banks of the Rio Grande. State police officers have been shouting at migrants to turn back and in some cases refusing to provide water to people who request it. Todd, just to pick up on this once more, you know, how does this fit into sort of Abbott's other attempts here? And, and just I'm curious if we talk about the bear, we talked about the buoys in, in the river, but this is a, a multifaceted and, and quite an aggressive set of policies. There is also, unfortunately, an incentive on the right uh, to be seen being cruel to these migrants, I think. I, I think that press like that of concertino wire refusing water to migrants, in some cases being uh, giving orders to local forces to push them back in the water or block them from coming ashore. These things shock the conscience of uh, most people when they read them. There is a, uh, I'd say a fairly narrow, but an important vocal and voting faction on the right and the people who represent them, particularly in Texas, which has um, very, very right-wing representation at this point, um, thanks to gerrymandering and and other forces down there, where this type of um, advertised cruelty isn't really a liability, David. It's an asset being seen to be, you can call it being tough. Um, I think a reasonable person would call it being cruel to human beings who are, um, regardless of their immigration status, trying to survive, um, endangering their lives, putting up concertina wire and forcing them in the water in some cases. Um, Unfortunately, with, um, with in some precincts of our politics, it's it's not seen as a downside mm. to have these policies. And that's clear. It's clear because the incentives keep repeating and um, keep incentivizing the behavior. So let's end here with the economy. Uh, on Wednesday, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates to a 22-year high. This comes after a short break last month in a long line of interest rate hikes to tamp down inflation. Without price stability, the economy doesn't work for anyone. In particular, without price stability, we will not achieve a sustained period of strong labor market conditions that benefit all. Since early last year, the FOMC has significantly tightened the stance of monetary policy. Today, we took another step by raising our policy interest rate a quarter percentage point, and we are continuing to reduce our securities holdings at a brisk pace. We've covered a lot of ground, and the full effects of our tightening have yet to be felt. Looking ahead, we will continue to take a data-dependent approach in determining the extent of additional policy firming that may be appropriate. That was Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell. And Megan Scully, I know that at Bloomberg News, where you work, Fed Day is a big deal. 
<laughs> it, yes, it is celebrated yes. or at like least marked. For us. <laughs> exactly. Happening every few months. Um, let me just ask you sort of what you and your colleagues have divined about what this this latest hike will mean for for consumers. Sure. So, you know, I think it was expected, you know, the the pause that we, we had in the last go round um, was just that. Um, I think most most of us who were watching this closely were expecting the Fed to 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 increase rates once, maybe twice more this year. Um, and, you know, I think that what it comes down to is is essentially what Jay Powell said right there on um, the effects of our, our, t- our tightening have yet to really be felt. That, that inflation, although it is starting to recede sharply, has been persistent now. Um, and, uh, and even with the, the, hike rate, uh, hikes of rates over and over again, you know, people were still spending and and the economy was really resilient during this period, um, surprisingly so, which is which is good in, on one hand and, and bad on the other mm-hmm. if you want to see rates come down. But interestingly, you know, in, in announcing this this rate hike, you know, Powell also said he sees the chances of the U.S. Um, having a recession later this year declining. Um, so this this gets back into sort of the, the resiliency of the economy and the delicate balancing that the Fed has to do. Um, you know, on, on one hand, they, they need to get inflation under control. And on the other, you know, they, they want to steer us away from, from an actual recession. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out and, and what happens at the next meeting in February. Uh, in, I mean, I'm sorry, in, in September. In September, yeah, <laughs> and, and two jobs reports and two CPI reports before then, and we heard something so interesting from the Fed chair that his staff, the Fed staff, is now no longer forecasting a, a recession. Uh, Anita, political reporting this week, the Federal Trade Commission is preparing to launch a lawsuit against e-commerce giant Amazon. This is a huge one and a huge focus of the chair of the FTC, Lena Khan. The suit will break up parts of the company. What more do we know about that investigation to Amazon and what we might expect in that lawsuit when it's unveiled? Yeah, some great reporting by one of my colleagues. This is a sort of a long-awaited antitrust lawsuit that we we have been covering and others have been covering. Um, we expect it to be wide-ranging. It's expected as soon as August, and it could challenge uh, a number of the business practices, including, um, for those of you who have Amazon, Amazon Prime. Um, and so uh, we don't really know sort of how uh, it's going to go about, but we do know that it's that we do hear a number of things that the FTC is concerned about. One is that the bundling of services um, together, and I'm talking about Amazon Prime, uh, that cements the company's market power. They're looking at rules requiring third-party retailers to offer their lowest prices on its platform, cutting off the possibility of lower prices elsewhere. So there are a lot of different things that uh, that it's looking at. And, uh, you know, this will be a huge one for the FTC. Uh, we've seen other ones. They haven't had some luck on some of the mm-hmm. some of the other ones that they've had. And, and so we would see this is a huge deal for the for the chair, as you has have you mentioned. Anita Kumar is with Politico. Todd Zwillick is with Vice News. Megan Scully is with Bloomberg News. My thanks to all of you. I go out every night and sleep Before we head to the global edition of the News Roundup, a remembrance. Since you've been gone, I can do whatever. 
Irish singer-songwriter and activist Sinead O'Connor passed away this week at her home in London. Born in 1966 in Ireland, O'Connor experienced a tumultuous childhood, including spending time in a church reform institution for girls. It was there she got her first guitar. It was 1990's I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got that made her a household name. One song in particular. Her cover of Prince's Nothing Compares to You became a number one hit worldwide. The album won the 1991 Grammy for Best Alternative Album. O'Connor refused to attend the ceremony in protest of commercialization. Throughout her life, she would continue to be outspoken and resolute about her convictions. Here she is speaking to the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation about the aftermath of her Saturday Night Live appearance in 1992, where she tore up a picture of the Pope speaking out against child abuse within the Catholic Church. You know, I didn't expect that, you know, I was going to be carried around in a chair and, you know, have champagne poured all over me or anything, you know. Some were supportive and some were not supportive. And I understood those that weren't because we in Ireland knew about this abuse issue in 1987. At the time I made that gesture, it was an abhorrent idea in America to suggest that a priest could be sexually molesting a child. So I don't have any, you know, bad feelings or anything. I completely understand why people found that an abhorrent idea, you know. She released her memoir, Rememberings, in 2021. In 2022, she lost her 17-year-old son. Sinead O'Connor was 56. Coming up on the global edition of the News Roundup, a military coup in Niger, a wildfire emergency engulfs large parts of Greece, and the rise and fall of China's best-known wolf warrior diplomat. We cover all the biggest stories from overseas after this quick break. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top 10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial, a member FDIC. It's time for the Global News Roundup. Let's get into it. Russian President Vladimir Putin admits hostilities have intensified significantly in southeastern Ukraine. We'll talk about the mysterious disappearance and then firing of China's foreign minister. And has soccer superstar Kylian Mbappe rejected a $1 billion deal? The saga of where he will go next continues. Joining us now is Nancy Youssef, national security correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. James Kitfield is with us as well, a senior fellow at the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. He's the author of the book In the Company of Heroes, the inspiring stories of Medal of Honor recipients from America's longest wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And Jennifer Williams is the deputy editor at Foreign Policy and the host of the Negotiators podcast. Welcome to all of you. And on Wednesday, a group of soldiers detained Niger's president and announced they'd seized power in response to the deteriorating security situation in that country. 
We, the Security Defense Forces gathered at the National Council for the Safeguard of the Nation, have decided to put an end to the regime you are familiar with. This follows the continuous deterioration of the security situation, the bad social and economic management. We reaffirm our support to all commitments undertaken by Niger. A commander of the Presidential Guards named himself head of a transitional government on Friday. Jen, let me start with you. Uh, What do we know about him and what's he said about the motivation here for this takeover? Right. So this is Abdurrahman Chiani. Um, he is, as you said, um, a general. He's the commander of the Presidential Guards. This is a special unit of about 2,000 soldiers. They're the ones that uh, basically seized the presidential palace and held and are apparently still holding Mohammed Bazoum, the current president. We don't know a ton about him. Um, he's also known as Omar Chiani. So even his name seems to be um, <laughs> a bit confusing uh-huh. at this point. Um, We know he's 62. He's been heading the presidential guard since 2015. He was a close ally of the former president, Mohamedou Issoufou. Um, That's the the politician who led the country until 2021. Um, It seems that there were were reports that he was involved in blocking the attempted coup that happened um, in March 2021. So that's there was a military unit that uh, tried to seize the presidential palace in just the days right before Bazoum uh, was due to be sworn in. So uh, he has denied involvement in that. But um, that's basically what we know. So he is, uh, in terms of how he's kind of justifying this, as you said, you know, he appeared on state TV on Friday is saying that um, how, you know, President Bazoum was trying to convince people that all was going well. Um, And then he says, but the harsh reality is that there's a pile of dead, displaced humiliation and frustration. Mm. So he's basically saying that the ability of uh, the current government to address the extremist kind of insurgency um, is not uh, there, that they're not doing a good job. Um, There are some reasons for this. They have taken a different approach than their neighbors, um, especially in in Mali and Burkina Faso. Um, The government in, in Niger has taken more of a um, a less military approach, um, though there is a military element, of course, to the mm-hmm. counterterrorism. But they've also engaged in dialogue with some of the extremist groups. And it's certainly possible that the military is not thrilled about that approach and doesn't think that it's going well and has decided to take things into its own hands. Nancy Youssef, uh, Jen, giving us that characterization of the, this commander of the presidential guards' sense of, of President Bazoum, I, I wonder if you could just sort of characterize his time in office here going back to, to 2021. Sure. So he, as you know, took um, office in 2021 after runoff election. And during that time, he was really heralded, at least by the West, by the United States and its allies, as a one of the last sort of countries standing in the fight against extremist groups like the Islamic State and Boko Haram, which have been operating um, in that region. Um, and so we we heard about him in the context of sort of battling these groups, and that was something that he had campaigned on doing as well. However, it didn't appear that it was um, effectual on the streets, that there would continue to be crime um, and terrorism challenges within Niger, and that um, contributed to economic um, challenges as well. And so you might remember um, he was featured quite prominently during Biden's African summit mm-hmm. late last year. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken um, visited um, the region earlier this year and promised $150 million in humanitarian aid. And so 
I think the simplest way to think about it is he was quite celebrated um, by um, allies, U.S. allies, but uh, was slowly losing faith within the state uh, because of a lack of real improvement in the security situation. James, let me ask you about um, the sort of military presence the U.S. has in this country. There are more than 1,000 U.S. service personnel there involved in counterterrorism operations against Boko Haram and ISIS affiliates. It's a U.S. drone base in the country. Talk, if you would, James, just about the importance of this relationship between the U.S. and Niger for counterterrorism efforts on the African continent. Well, it has been very important, which makes it all the more um, concerning that this this president, who's been very pro-Western, has been deposed. We've lost basically our footprint uh, in, along with France and Mali and, and Burkina Faso, so which also suffered coups. And the idea that these new military juntas are going to crack down on the Islamic extremists certainly has not played out in those countries. So uh, Niger was a key remaining node. We have, as you mentioned, a, a very large uh, drone base there that really is our key node in the Sahel region to keeping track of these extremist groups. So uh, if this indeed becomes a coup, you know, an, an admitted official coup in the, ter- in the eyes of the U.S. government, that's going to make that, uh, that footprint very hard to maintain. You know, in recent weeks, we've started this show by talking about the Wagner Group, and lest anyone think today is different. <laughs> there is an element here of, of the Wagner Group's involvement or interest uh, in, in this story. The Wagner Group, uh, on Thursday's chief, Evgeny Prigozhin, said in a statement, quote, what happened in Niger is the fight of its people against the colonizer. It effectively means winning independence. The rest will depend on the people of Niger. Nancy Yusuf, what role is Wagner playing in the region broadly, and um, you know what, what speculation or what sense do we have of what role it might be playing in this in this coup itself? So they've had tremendous influence. Um, across the region. And one of the ways that we've seen that really manifest itself um, is after um, events like this, if it indeed ends up being a coup, this is one of um, at least six that have happened in West Africa, again, if it is a coup since 2020. And each time we've seen the Wagner Group move into the region, often at the invitation of those that have led those coups. And what they've done is invest in infrastructure. They've invested in security, um, as James noted, not necessarily effectively in terms of really clamping down on these kinds of problems, but they have been welcomed. That said, there's no evidence that they were directly involved in the events that we have seen in the past week. However, um, one... I think one of the things I'm looking for personally is if we start to see that they push for the whoever ends up being in charge, if it is indeed um, these groups, push for the U.S. presence to leave and invite the Wagner group in instead. The other thing I would notice, there were protests in support of um, this week's activities in Niger. And one of the things that we saw were Russian flags being held by residents. Mm -hmm. And so that there seemed to be some signaling from the population that one of the reasons those who support it do support it is is that they see this as an opportunity to push out Western allies and create opportunity Hmm. for Russia, which has primarily manifested itself on the continent through the Wagner Group. That's Nancy Youssef. She's with The Wall Street Journal. James Kitfield is with us as well from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, and Jennifer Williams from Foreign Policy. And I want to turn now to extreme weather around the globe. People are fighting wildfires across North Africa and the Mediterranean. At least 34 people died this week because of wildfires in northern Algeria. Meanwhile, thousands have fled Greece, and at least five people have died as the country also battles raging wildfires. About 20,000 people, including many tourists, have been evacuated from areas of the Greek island of Rhodes since last weekend. Greece's prime minister says the country is, quote, at war. It is the largest fire evacuation in Greece's history. 
Jen, what have we heard from European leaders here linking these fires to climate change? How are they talking about this from a policy perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone's been pretty clear that, look, you know, the recent heat wave that Europe has seen, we're also experiencing it now um, in the U.S. as well. Um, you know, when the weather is extremely hot and extremely dry, it makes it harder for you know, firefighters to put out wildfires, it makes them easier to spread. Um, You know, it is, I think, interesting to see a much more um, kind of concerted willingness to directly connect things to climate change, um, especially when you get down to kind of lower level officials as well. Um, I think everyone is very much aware at this point that, look, you know, um, (laughs) when, when dry, extremely hot weather like this is more um, prevalent, more common, which, as we know, human-driven climate change is making that more common, then the regular wildfire season is going to be longer, it's going to be more intense, it's going to be harder to stop, it's going to be more widespread. So, I mean, it, you know, a lot of people will, um, you know, maybe look at this and go, well, hey, there are wildfires every year. That's correct, there are. But these heat waves that we're coming, uh, that we're seeing come more frequently into more extreme, you know, temperatures, mm. record highs that we're seeing, it makes these conditions for these fires to spread much more likely. So the area burned by wildfires in Greece this year is almost two and a half times the average for this time of year normally. We've also seen in Canada, right? Uh, they've had their worst wildfire season on record. So, um, you know, even if you can't um, necessarily point directly to climate change saying this specific fire started, right? Fires start for lots of reasons, lightning, uh, you know, campfires, all mm-hmm. kinds of things. It's the heat from climate change that is making them spread and be worse. And seeing an uptick in protests as well. Just Stop Oil protesters arrested last week at the British Open, the world's oldest golf tournament. And this week, climate activist Greta Thunberg carried away by Swedish police on Monday for being part of a group of protesters blocking a road in the city of Malmo. She just appeared in court there over a similar protest in June. We know that we cannot save the world by playing by the rules because the rules have to be changed. Greta Thunberg is now 20 years old. She's been calling for world leaders to take action on climate science since she was 15, staging weekly protests outside the Swedish parliament. And let's turn now to the war in Ukraine. Fighting is intensifying in Ukraine this week. That's according to both Russian President Vladimir Putin and U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Attention is on southeastern Ukraine, the Zaporizhia region. That's where analysts say Ukrainian forces are trying to break through Russian lines. James, the front line in this war, 600 miles long. What is the significance of this specific area here? What would it mean if Ukrainian troops could punch through and get to the coast? Well, they could punch through and get to the coast. I mean, that's the that's the holy grail of the strategy is to basically sever the land bridge between Russia and Crimea, where it has its major uh, forces, you know, inside Ukraine proper. And that uh, they've been, you know, basically probing that 600-mile line for weeks now, and a lot of people have been complaining that, you know, it's going too slow, but they've taken some pretty serious casualties. But in recent days, we've seen them really commit some of these Western-trained and equipped brigades that have modern armor, some of our Bradley fighting vehicles, Western European tanks, and they're starting to commit those. So this could be the moment of truth to see if there really is going to be a breakthrough um, in what has really been a sort of stalemate of trench warfare for months. And uh, this, you know, again, we're watching very closely. The Russians are claiming that they're repelling the attacks. The Ukrainians are saying they're making significant progress. Uh, You know, the fog of war is very prevalent, as it usually is in these situations. But uh, the fact that they're committing these brigades is, is very important. And we'll see if they can punch through, as you say. 
Nancy Youssef, how, how readily are we able to see through that fog that James is describing? How do we know what's really happening on the ground? Well, these things are always challenging. What we do know is that um, for months there had been an expectation of the counteroffensive and that during that time the Russians have put up really strong defenses in southeast um, Ukraine. We, we also know that the, that the Ukrainians are coming forth and talking about which weapon systems are effective, talking about some of the personnel challenges that they have as they enter um, the, the second year of the war, and they've got fighters who have been at the front lines for months. And so part of um, covering, I think, wars both on the ground and from afar is taking those mosaics and seeing what kind of picture you can put together. Broadly, we know that the administration policy is that they want to Ukraine to um, get put enough pressure on Russia to, so that they're willing to reach the negotiation table. I think the ultimate thing that we don't know in terms of understanding this war is where that pressure is, how much territory Ukraine would have to take back. It's something that both the U.S. and the Ukrainians, I think, have been careful not to spell it, to not make sort of um, very uh, black and white definitions of success or failure. But I think part of the confusion that we have with this war is that we just don't know where that pressure point is mm. as the U.S. policy states it in terms of do they have to get all the way to the coast? Do they have to close that land bridge between Russia and Crimea? Or does something short of that lead to some sort of negotiation? If if And if that is even the ultimate long-term outcome that, that, that all sides are seeking. Jen Williams, take us to St. Petersburg, uh, where President Putin held a summit this week with 16 African leaders. I should say Evgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Group, also there in St. Petersburg, quite, quite bizarrely. That's a story for, for another time. What the president talked about uh, in large part was grain. He said, quote, we are taking maximum efforts to avert a global food crisis. He said Russia would send grain to African countries in need. And this is, of course, after Russia withdrew last week from the Black Sea grain deal, which allowed Ukrainian grain to be exported through the Black Sea. Jen Williams, is anyone buying this pitch from from President Putin? Um, No, not really. Um, I think everyone's pretty clear that uh, what Putin is doing is essentially, you know, weaponizing food, weaponizing hunger to, you know, gain geopolitical uh, allies. Um, you know, he he's not actually just giving free grain to countries in need. He's giving free grain to six specific countries in Africa who just so happen to all have, you know, maybe voted his way at the UN or, you know, done other things, refused to kind of um, back, you know, the US and and Ukraine and the Western um, kind of push uh, of isolation against him. So he said that he, you know, Russia would deliver 25,000 to 50,000 tons of free grain to Burkina Faso, Eritrea, Mali, Somalia, Zimbabwe, Central African Republic. Um, But he's not giving it to everyone. And he's you know, making it very clear, like there's, it's not hard to read between the lines. He's saying, you get on side, you support me and, you know, I'll help you feed people. But uh, otherwise, you know, you're on your own. He likes to say that, um, oh, Ukraine, you know, even under the the Black Sea grain deal, Ukraine was only giving, you know, grain to wealthy countries. That's also not true. Um, Much of the grain from Ukraine was going to, um, you know, developing countries in Africa and in the Middle East and elsewhere. So, you know, he's welcome to say this all he wants. He had this summit. Mm -hmm. He's trying to, you know, bring more African countries and try to at least convince them to not, you know, join the West against him. But I think we saw not even as many people Uh, Not as many African leaders even showed Hmm. up this time as did in 2019. A U.S. Marine veteran made news in Ukraine this week. Trevor Reed was wrongfully detained in Russia for more than two years. He was freed in a prisoner swap last April. 
then traveled to Ukraine in November to volunteer with the army there. Two NGOs evacuated him this week from Ukraine to a U.S. military hospital in Germany about two weeks after he was injured. On Tuesday, the State Department spokesperson said Americans should not travel to Ukraine, and if they do, the U.S. will not rescue them. We are not in a place to provide assistance to evacuate private U.S. citizens from Ukraine, including those Americans who may decide to travel to Ukraine to participate in that ongoing war. James Kitfield, give us your read on on this situation of Trevor Reed's trip to Ukraine and sort of the, the circumstances that have led to him now ending up at a, at a military base in Germany. Well, I mean, he's a, he's a former U.S. service member, so I, I, that's not that surprising to me. But what is surprising is after being, you know, captured by Russia uh, or, or held by Russia and had a lot of diplomatic heavy lifting to get him released, he goes and joins, um, you know, the Ukrainian forces, really sort of telling the U.S. government that, you know, thanks for getting me out of here, but I'm, I'm going back to, the, to this fight. I don't think that's very much appreciated by the people who really, you know, spent a lot of diplomatic capital to get him released from Russia in the first place. So I think there's some consternation on the part of the U.S. government. Uh, and, and you know, he got wounded, which is, which is tragic, and let's, you know, let's hope he, he pulls through okay. But I don't think he's making many friends in the U.S. government right now. Nancy Yusuf, uh, your colleague, Evan Gershkovich, has been jailed in Russia for nearly four months now, also classified by the U.S. as, as wrongfully detained. Would be grateful for an update on his conditional release that, that you can give us. Uh, and I'm also just curious sort of how the U.S., uh, as it's sort of looking at that case and trying to get him out of Russia, sees what's happened here in Ukraine. Well, I appreciate you asking about him. Yes, he's been held for over 100 days and uh you know, we think about Evan every single day, and uh, and and he's been um, receiving letters from his friends and his colleagues. Has, from what we can tell, shown a remarkably strong spirit under the circumstances, which are obviously quite terrible. We know that his next hearing is supposed to happen sometime at the end of August, but there hasn't been a date set yet. We we've heard and seen from the Russians and the United States. Um, talks about him. Um, And while that's encouraging, I think it's fair to say that we're all bracing for a potential long detention, given that there's no clear path yet. And that's, I think, the most heartbreaking part of all of this. And um, and I I would just say that um, I've been really personally touched and I'm so taken by the support across the world um, that Evan has received, people wearing the buttons, people um, reaching out to him and sending letters, people really keeping his name, including you, and thank you for that, um, to the fore, because um, we need to, we want to keep attention on him because it's such an important case. Um, And, and, you know, as a journalist, it's it's an assault on all of us, and we feel it very, very deeply, and so... Um, we had a, the Wall Street Journal had a readathon um, um, earlier this month in which we read his stories, which was really moving, and and so it's been um, really heartwarming to see the kind of support that he's getting, and also really heartbreaking um, as we think about every day that he's there, and 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 the potential that that this could go on for for uh, weeks, if and maybe even months longer. I'm sure you all of us thinking about him uh, as well. Nancy Yusuf of the, Wall- of the Wall Street Journal. James Kitfield is with the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. Jennifer Williams is with Foreign Policy. And I want to move to China, if we could, uh, where this week Chinese state media reported that Chin Gong was removed from his post as foreign minister in that country. Speculation about his whereabouts began after he missed many high-profile visits from U.S. officials over the past few weeks. He was known as a wolf warrior diplomat. 
Jen Williams, why was he fired from his position? What do we know about the sort of the circumstances surrounding uh, what led him to be sort of off the scene for for many weeks and then ultimately get get scuttled, get removed from his position? Uh, we have no idea, essentially, um, is the short answer. Uh, there are all sorts of theories out there. Um, any one of them may be true. None of them may be true. Who knows? Um, this is, you know, something that we've seen before. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party uh, is very opaque and makes um, staffing decisions as it is wont to do without providing any sort of explanation. Um, this one was particularly mysterious. You know, he disappeared from public view for more than a month. Um, he had only been in the job since January. Uh, and then, you know, he kind of disappeared. Uh, and then he was officially removed from his post on Tuesday. They made an announcement. Then the Foreign Affairs Ministry erased a bunch of references to him from Removed the website. Removed them from the site. Incredible. Yes. yes. Yeah. Very much one of those kind of old Soviet-style, you know, <laughs> erasing someone from a photo Purge to act for as the if they never age. existed. Yes. Yes. Exactly. And then all of a sudden, some of the references appear to be back. Um, so we don't know. We do know that that Wang Yi, who was previously in that position, um, and who had been promoted to the basically the top official in the Chinese Communist Party uh, for foreign affairs, so that was like the number one position in China. He's mm-hmm. now back into the role, taking over for Qin Gong. We still don't know where Qin Gong is, what's going on, why, whether he has a career, whether he's going to be in prison. Who knows? We don't know. James Kitfield, more news out of China this week. The unemployment rate for young people in that country hit another high. Last month, the rate reached more than 21 percent. That's for people between the ages of 16 and 24 years old. What does this say about China's economy right now? What does it say about the recovery this country is trying to stage after uh, dealing with COVID-19, with the pandemic? It, it tells us that they're in real trouble in their economy. I mean, the Chinese miracle is looking pretty shabby at the moment. Uh, they have, you know, the zero COVID policies that uh, they implemented for so long seem to have backfired on them. Their uh, exports, which was the engine driving the Chinese miracle, uh, have dropped precipitously. They have a huge amount of debt at home amongst China, you know, the Chinese people because of this real estate deals gone bad and banks who are overextended with real estate deals. And so they can't, it's not easy for them to make up for the lack of exports with domestic consumption. So right now, China is looking a little bit unstable in terms of its economy. And the fact that you've got a lot of young people, you know, millions coming out of school into a job market that is not really uh, positioned to hire them uh, is is a bad sign for the Chinese uh, Communist Party because these people are very, uh, you know, these young people are, are very, you know, tech savvy. They're also very internet savvy. So when they're not happy, uh, it tends to get on social media and spread around. So all in all, a pretty a pretty rocky picture for the for the Chinese economy. Rocky picture for the Chinese economy. Let me just stay in the region here. And James, I'll throw one more question to you. Uh, and I'll turn here to Cambodia. Their Prime Minister Hun Sen has announced that next month he'll step down. He's going to hand power over to his oldest son. Uh, that's after the Prime Minister's party won national elections on Sunday in a landslide victory. Many rights organizations criticized those elections, accusing them of being rigged. Hun Sen, Asia's longest serving leader, what effect might his absence have on Cambodia's politics? And James, I should say, <laughs> I guess he's not going away completely. I think he's going to have some new role here in, in the government sort of overseeing, I guess, the, the work of his son. 
Right. So this, this, this you know, unfortunately, you're not going to see a whole lot of change here. I mean, the, the Hun Sen has been there for years and years and years. And now, you know, at 70, he's decided he's going to pass the baton down to his son to sort of create sort of a nepanistic uh, sort of chain of chain of, uh, of rule. And he's, he's said very clearly that he'll be behind the scenes and as the party leader, uh, retaining a lot of his power in the in the country, so basically, I don't see much change happening because of this this uh, this transition. And a bit more news here out of Asia in India: the parliament has authorized a no confidence vote against Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Lawmakers who issued the vote requested the vote, hope it will spur Modi to address clashes between ethnic groups in the northeastern Manipur state where more than 130 people have been killed and 60,000 displaced since violence began there in May. The day after the fighting began, a video went viral showing dozens of men parading and assaulting two women who were stripped and sexually assaulted. Let's turn now to Israel. On Monday, the Israeli government passed the first major piece of legislation in Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's plan to overhaul the legal system. The plan has spurred months of protests, shutdowns, and divided the country. Netanyahu appeared on ABC's Good Morning America on Thursday, defending his plans to limit powers to the country's unelected judges. We have the most activist judicial court on the planet, and it's arrogated for itself powers from the government, from the executive, and the legislative branches. So we've tried, we're trying to correct it, but I want to bring the pendulum to the middle. I don't want to bring the pendulum to the other side. It's a minor correction. It's described as the end of Israeli democracy. I think that's silly. Nancy Yusuf, he's describing it there as a minor correction, calling it silly, but this is a plan that is not going over well with the thousands of protesters uh, on the street. What are they saying? What's their message and uh, how much in force are they in, in, in Israel today? I think what they're ultimately saying is because Israel doesn't have a constitution, the courts were sort of the uh, check on the executive and legislative branch. And you have those now both um, led by Netanyahu's party. And in the absence of having an independent courts, that there's no way to actually enforce those checks. And so there are when he says there are people who are saying democracy at stake, what they're really saying is that worry about the check. And so now the 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 court the uh, parliament's um, uh, off session until October. It, the Supreme Court now has the possibility of considering this. There is talk about sort of making adjustments in terms of how judges are selected. The issue ultimately is the the court has. Um, um, what, what they really went after was the court being able to overturn government decisions on this idea of um, reasonableness. So mm-hmm. one of the discussions is redefining that. But the court's arguably in a really difficult position because if they overturn this, um, then some would say that the court is vindicating the very people who say it's out of control. But if they don't do anything about it, it puts all of Israel's institutions in danger. There is talk about reservists not showing up for work. There's been protests, as you note, for months. There have been workers who have talked about not showing up. And so we're at a very um, precarious point um, on this discussion. So I, I, I understand that he's calling it silly, but I think for the critics, they see that as really foundational to when we say Israel's a democracy, what, that, what exactly that means. I should say thousands of Israel's reserve forces signing a petition saying they won't serve a government that goes ahead with the proposed judicial reforms. 
James, give us the vantage from allies uh, around the world. This has drawn concerns from the U.S., from the U.N., this week from Germany uh, as well. Uh, what, are they, what are they saying as they watch this unfold? I think they're expressing a sort of horror that, that this very right-wing, the most right-wing and extremist government in Israel's history um, is going forward with these uh, judicial, quote-unquote, reforms that look like a, the authoritarian's play, uh, playbook. We saw this in Hungary, too. What's the first thing an authoritarian does? He, he, he neuters an independent judiciary. So that's the, that's the concern. And a lot of uh, Netanyahu's Western allies, including President Biden, have just, you know, displayed their displeasure with him, you know, going forward with this. Uh, the fact that he could call this sort of silly is absurd. A thousand reservists, many of whom are the, you know, the, the, the backbone of the, U, the Israeli Air Force, have said that they will, they will not report for duty because of this. That's not silly. That's directly questioning whether Israel's you know, security will be maintained. And uh, you know, it looks increasingly like this government's going to push through additional judicial reforms that are going to neuter the independence of the, the Supreme Court. And there are members of this government who want to annex the West Bank, which will um, basically ensure that Israel will not be a democracy going forward. And there's no one who thinks that they're going to give Palestinians in the West Bank the rights of Israeli citizens, so you will have an apartheid country. And that's what the U.S. has been saying for years to Israel. To say, this path you are on is going to you can be either remain a Jewish state or a democratic state, but you're not going to remain a Jewish democracy if you keep going down this path. And he is... He is going straight down that path. Uh, when I was reporting from Israel, there was a the activist had a saying that the U.S. had to, you know, exp- give its leverage as the, you know, the, the biggest, uh, you know, supplier of money and arms to Israel. That you don't let uh, your fr- friends don't let friends drive drunk, um, which means that you need when Israel goes off the, the rails, you need to try to bring it back um, towards a two-state solution. And now, you know, basically, this government is driving drunk. Jennifer Williams, I played that clip from uh, Good Morning America. The prime minister also appeared on on NPR. I could have played the clip of him talking with uh, my colleague, Steve Inskeep. He's making this sort of media blitz, and I wonder what what that says to you about how he is uh, assessing or perceiving the reaction uh, to this overhaul, uh, certainly in the United States. Yeah, I noticed that too. Uh, He's uh, all of a sudden showing up in everyone's uh, airwaves here. Um, Yeah, I think, you know, he's definitely worried. I think he's definitely concerned, um, you know, about the the kind of U.S. perception of Israel. Um, You know, I I think there's one thing that's really important to note here, um, and James is absolutely right in terms of, uh, of how the U.S. is seeing this. I think it's important to look at Biden um, and his position here. We have a really great piece by um, Aaron David Miller over at um, on foreign policy. He's from Carnegie, um, talking about how Biden's kind of stuck in a bind here, right? Um, going into an election year, you know, Biden is not really excited to pick a public fight with Netanyahu. Biden has kind of longstanding, deep personal ties to Israel that he, you know, always talks about how much he loves Israel. I think. In that sense, you have kind of a personal reason why Biden doesn't want to get really public with this. But you also have the fact that this is, for all intents and purposes, still a domestic policy issue for Israel, right? This isn't, I mean, yes, as James mentioned, there are implications for the annexation of the West Bank, et cetera, and foreign policy. But with the, specifically with the judicial reform, it's a little bit harder for a U.S. president to be, you know, uh, maybe as, as forward, as forthcoming as they would like to be. We saw the White House put out a statement um, you know, saying that it was unfortunate that, that Netanyahu had gone forward with this without consensus, but they wouldn't even use the word undemocratic. Mm. So 
so, you know, even the White House has really kind of pulled its punches. Now, I am sure they're being much tougher in private, but still, I think, you know, that Biden is limited in what he can actually do right now or what he will do right now. I think he's not as willing to go and really kind of go full forward and, and pick a fight publicly with Netanyahu over this. Certainly limited by precedent, and I read from that piece by Aaron David Miller uh, talking about sort of very good reasons why pushing beyond those limits would be both unwise and counterproductive in his words. First, he writes, U.S. presidents, as a general rule, do not like to fight publicly with Israeli prime ministers. It's distracting, messy, and can be politically costly. James Kitfield, let's talk about precedent here, and you're talking about sort of the unprecedented nature of these overhauls. Should the response, do you think the response might need to be unprecedented? Well, for all the reasons Jennifer said, I, it's very difficult for, you know, one of the legacies of Netanyahu is basically politicize the issue of Israel in the United States. So if if Biden comes down very hard, the Republicans will make hay with that. Uh, if you remember Netanyahu came to America and spoke before our Congress in opposition to the Obama administration's Iran nuclear deal, which was seen as a major affront, and then embraced very closely uh, President Trump in his administration. So he's kind of politicized, and this will be a big part of his legacy, he's politicized uh, the issue of Israel in a way that it didn't used to be. It used to be totally bipartisan support for the state of Israel in Congress and the American sort of, uh, you know, political scene. So there is not a lot that I think that he will do. I mean, we, we give them more money than any other country and we have for decades in foreign aid, most of it uh, for weapon weaponry. But it's, you know, it's billions of dollars a year. But to, to, uh, that is actually our leverage. But it's very hard for a president to actually use that without uh, getting blowback uh, domestically. Jennifer Williams, one more note here on Israel. We've talked a lot about sort of what the former president, Donald Trump, keeps it at Mar-a-Lago in terms of documents and, and papers. <laughs> uh, and those have been returned to, to the National Archives. We're now, we're now seeing the return of some ancient artifacts that were sent to the U.S. by Israel in, in 2019. They had an unplanned years-long stay at, at Mar-a-Lago. Walk us through this story quickly, which, which is a wild one. This is, I guess, a, a Hanukkah present uh, that wasn't intended to stay here in the U.S. Right. In Trump's defense, it doesn't seem like it was his decision. It's not like he grabbed these from the White House and decided to take them home. These never really made it to the White House. They were supposed to be a, a kind of gift to a White House Hanukkah party um, presented to Trump and put on kind of display temporarily. They never quite made it. it. Seems like the State Department wanted to inspect them. Then they ended up missing the party. Uh, then COVID hit. So there was a, a wealthy kind of donor named Saul Fox who ended up with them at his house in California. Then he was invited to a Hanukkah party down at Mar-a-Lago. He said, OK, finally, I can I can bring these and present them to Trump. He apparently had the permission of the Israeli Antiquities um, Ministry to do this. It was supposed to be temporary. Uh, he was presented them to Trump. They were apparently have been on display. Then Haaretz, Israeli publication, published a piece recently saying uh, that Israeli officials have been trying to get in touch with Trump to get them back. Uh, it looks like it was just kind of a miscommunication, hopefully, and that Trump is going to be returning them. But it is a bit of a wild uh, story coming on top of, you know, even more charges on Trump in terms of retaining classified documents. In this case, it, thinks, it seems to have just been a kind of a, a you know, comedy of errors that ended up like this. 
lasting many years. Uh, let's end here with sports. The 2023 FIFA World Cup, Women's World Cup, continues this week. The U.S. women's national team playing the Netherlands on Wednesday, the match ending in a 1-1 draw. Around the 60th minute of the game, U.S. midfielder Lisley Hurren received a nasty tackle by Netherlands player Danielle Van Donk, and her response to that tackle was a goal only a few minutes later. Uh, Nancy, beside that killer goal, what World Cup updates can you give us? How many of these games have you been watching, and what are you watching for here in the week ahead? Well, I have to say, um, obviously, I'm going to be watching U.S.-Portugal, and and I have to say that part of the driving uh, force in that is that game, and the fact that she said afterwards, um, after that tackle, I was angry, and I was driven by angry, and I was going to get results, and I maybe... It just spoke close to my heart because I could certainly relate to being driven by by something like that. And so it really, I think, for me personally, I think for others, really kind of got us invested in that this, the, the, the sport, the passion, the things that drive people to sort of um, go against the odds. This was the 62nd minute of, of the match. And, and because of that, um, they're now in a position to, um, to stay in and, and keep going forward. And so um, I think anyone who has um, young daughters at home, as I do, it's a wonderful message to show that, um, you know, I always tell that my kids, every kick is a boost. And that was such a great example of it. So for me, um, obviously, why watching U.S.-Portugal, but really sort of inspired by the message that um, that her resilience could give everyone who watched that game. Move to the world of men's soccer here, just because a, a world record offer was made to French player Kylian Mbappe by Saudi Arabian team Al-Hilal. Uh, but despite a $1.1 billion package, $1.1 billion offer, Mbappe, a World Cup winner refused to meet uh, with those Saudi officials when they were in France this week. James, what's your read of what's going on here and what's likely to happen here, a beloved figure on, on PSG? Is he going to walk away as a free agent at the end of the season? Is this a surprising move? Well, you know, it, it is kind of surprising that someone is willing to, to walk away from a billion dollars. It's not something that our professional golf uh, tour was willing to do. So we saw, we've saw we seen the split in uh, the U.S. golf because of, you know, incredible amounts of Saudi money used for sports watch there terrible human rights record. But it looks like that, that this, you know, this star striker and captain of France's na- national team is going to leave his current uh, team, Paris Saint-Germain, uh, and head to Spain's Real Madrid, which apparently he's had his high on since he was a little kid. Um, but the, the, the Paris Saint-Germain just left him off of a recent tour, and I think they're trying to get some, some big bucks for him before he becomes a free agent. So, you know, stay tuned, but uh, wherever he goes, believe me, he'll be well compensated. He'll get some money, many millions, uh, out of whatever deal is hatched here. And Jen Williams, lastly to you, Al-Halal also tried to sign Lionel Messi before he ultimately decided to join Major League Soccer here in the U.S. What do we know about this club and Saudi's growing influence in, in the sports world? Yeah, I mean, you know, as James said, Saudi's been spending a huge amount of money on sports deals. Um, apparently, a Guardian, the Guardian just did a new analysis and found that they spent at least $6.3 billion since early 2021, which is more than quadruple the previous amount that they spent over a six-year period. So they're really, really ramping up this attempt to kind of, um, you know, make moves in the sports world. This is coming from the Public Investment Fund. And, you know, uh, as James mentioned, uh, many... Uh, myself included, see this as an attempt at sports washing, basically trying to, you know, uh, rebrand uh, the Saudi brand uh, as, you know, the name that you associate with your favorite sports players and, you know, big international 
professional sports games, um, rather than, say, associating it with, you know, the murder and dismemberment of a journalist in a consulate in Turkey, um, you know, Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. So, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia has a, a horrible human rights record, and, um, you know, many see this as, as kind of an effort to, um, you know, do a rebranding, um, especially in, in places like, you know, golf and soccer. You have a lot of very wealthy people. You have a lot of very influential people who are doing deals, you know, on the on the putting green or, you know, at sports stadiums. And it helps to have, you know, Saudi royals in uh, in the room for that. So it, it certainly helps them spread their influence, um, but very much uh, an exercise in, in rebranding. Well, finally here. What a drag it is getting old. The man who sang about what a drag it is to get old turned 80 this week. Rolling Stones from Mick Jagger celebrated his birthday in style with a star-studded party at his home in London, showered with best wishes online from his Rolling Stones bandmates. Time is certainly on that guy's side. A big thank you to Nancy Youssef, National Security Correspondent at the Wall Street Journal, I guess getting up for the 3 a.m. game on August 1st between the U.S. and Portugal, as all of us will be, I am sure. Senior fellow at the Center for the Study of the Presidency in Congress, James Kitfield, was with us as well. He's the author of the book, In the Company of Heroes, the Inspiring Stories of Medal of Honor Recipients for America's Longest Wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Jennifer Williams is deputy editor at Foreign Policy and host of the Negotiators podcast. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. Aileen Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand with help from Matthew Simonson. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington. It's distributed by NPR. I'm NPR's David Gura. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.